you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, No man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks be to God that we're a church that goes through tough Old Testament books like Joshua. I love that uh, we go through books like this, which, if you haven't yet realized, are not easy for modern ears like ours, with modern sensibilities and categories, to hear. And yet we believe this is God's word, profitable for us, and he speaks to us today through it. And that's what we've seen the last nine weeks, that God has spoken to us through the book of Joshua. We've seen time and time again of his character, his nature, and his faithfulness. And this morning we arrive to our final instalment of our series, the book of Joshua, Strong and Courageous, and our final two chapters, chapter 23 and 24, so turn there with me now. And where we find ourselves this morning uh, in the narrative in Israel's history is that they are in the promised land. 
We start Joshua with the people in the wilderness. And now, throughout this book, God has brought them into the promised land. We have seen him use Joshua, this impressive leader, military uh, commander, to, to, to lead Israel into battle. And we see them win impossible battle after impossible battle. And to this point, where they are now in the land, enjoying rest from their surrounding enemies. Yeah, we learned last week from, from Zach's sermon that although the conquest of the land was significant, it wasn't yet complete. There was still land that the Lord had promised to Israel that they had not yet occupied. What that means is there will still be future battles. There is still land yet to possess. What we also learned from these chapters, though, is that Joshua will not be the one to lead the people into battle. Why? Because he's old. All right. He's advanced in years. We learn in the end of chapter 24, he's 110 years old. He knows the end is near. He says to the people, I'm about to go to be with the ground. He's going to become dirt. Uh, he's not the one to lead the people into any future battle. But before he departs, he wants to leave the people with a final address, some, some parting words. And the question that we should be asking as readers as we go through this book is what will those final words be? What will the nature of this final address be to the people that he has led through military victory after military victory? Was anyone else here had to do like a, a battle speech in year 12 English or like in senior English? Hands up, if that was you, did a, did a, a battle speech. Uh, I remember in year 12, I think it was Sam 1, I uh, can't remember exactly what it was about, but uh, doing a battle speech. And I remember on a Friday night, wild Friday night, but I was in my room uh, recording this uh, spoken battle speech that I had written. And I remember giving my parents a warning, the volume was going to be high, I was going to be spurring the troops on to battle. That's what I did. I remember I was, you know, with great volume, you know, spurring my, you know, these, these people on to battle, to conquer the land, to defeat the enemy. And there's a sense in which we would expect something like this from Joshua, right? Knowing the context, knowing there are future battles, knowing that he won't be the one to lead them into these battles, we'd almost expect him to give something like this, this spurring battle speech, as they consider their future enemies and the battles they might ensue. Yet that's not what we find in these two chapters. What we find in these two chapters is that Joshua is less concerned about those battles and more about a battle that rages within. So this morning, that's what we're going to look at and see what God has to say to us through what Joshua says to the people of Israel as he ends his life and see what he charges and instructs them. So pray with me as we get into God's word together. Father, we thank you for your word. We come before you independent and in need of your word. We acknowledge that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We ask now, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you would sharpen our minds, soften our hearts, and strengthen our wills, and do it all we pray for the sake of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. So chapter 23 and chapter 24 follow a very similar outline, very similar structure. Chapter 23, he's addressing the leaders and the priests, the, the elders, the uh, judges and officials. In 24, he addresses uh, the larger assembly, all of Israel. But there's a very similar outline that we have to get our head around to understand what uh, he says in this address. And the first thing we have to see before he gets into any particular warning or instruction for the people in the present, he reminds them of God's grace in the past. So the first thing we see is God's grace in the past. Pick it up with me from chapter 23, verse 1, where he says this, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all those nations for your sake. 
for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Before he gives any instruction, any warnings, he wants to remind the people of God's gracious dealings with them in their lifetime. The, the kindness God has shown them in giving them victory after victory when it came to impossible battle after impossible battle. It is the Lord who has brought them into the land. It is the Lord, not them, not their military prowess, not their military wisdom or strategy, but in the final analysis, ultimately, it was the Lord. Now you may counter and say, yeah, but Joshua, you know, the people still went into battle. They had to be brave, put their armour on, Go and face these opponents. Sure. But what what Joshua is saying here is, let's not forget, let's not become puffed up with pride and think that we're here enjoying rest from our enemies in the promised land because of our own works, our own military might. It was the Lord's work. It is he who fought for you. It is he who has brought the victory. Earlier this week, I had one of our cars parked on the on the driveway and I was bringing it into the garage and my daughter, Greta, wanted to jump in the car and drive the car. Now, you know, she's four. She can't drive the car, but I entertained the idea. She jumped in on my lap, hands on the steering wheel, and she thought she was driving. You know, I was accelerating. She had the hands on the wheel. She thought she was steering. I'm not a negligent parent. I was in control. All right. But in her mind, she was driving the car, and she had told her brother with great pride, I just drove the car into the garage. He was upset that he didn't get to do it. But you see the point, right? She thought she was driving the car. It looked like she was driving the car, potentially, but she wasn't. I was. Israel, yes, they went into battle, but in the final analysis, ultimately, it was the Lord who gave them the victory. And Joshua is eager for the people to remember that as they now enjoy peace from their enemies as he is about to depart from them. In the final analysis, he wants us and them to conclude, verse 9, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. It is the Lord who fights fights, uh, for them. So we see here God's gracious dealings with Israel in their past. In chapter 24, Joshua takes it a step further back, and he goes back to Abraham and reminds the people of the reason, ultimately, why they are in the land. At one level, we could say, yes, they're in the land because the Lord fought for them. But on an even deeper level, we could say that they're in the land because of a promise that God made to Abraham, in particular to the offspring of Abraham. So we flick over to chapter 24, uh, we see this in verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, terror the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. Why does he bring up Abraham here? Because if you remember, the promise of this land was first given to Abraham. Let's do a little quick Bible history lesson here. So we meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. All right? He's not someone who's serving Yahweh, worshipping Yahweh. No, no, he's serving foreign gods, worshipping foreign gods. God does not call him because he is worthy or deserving, but rather in God's grace and kindness, he elects Abram. He calls him to himself and he calls Abraham to leave his country to leave his kindred and go to a land that he will show him. And so he, alongside his wife Sarah and his brother's uh, son Lot, go into this land, which is Canaan, the land we now see the current audience possessing in the promised land. And in the land, God makes these stupendous promises to Abraham. First one, he promises him great offspring. Uh, Descendants so numerous, they'd be likened to the stars in the sky. A great nation would come from his lineage. 
Now, here's why that would be very difficult to believe. In Romans, Paul picks it up and says that at this point in Abraham's life, when God makes this promise of numerous descendants, a a nation coming from his line, he is nearly dead. He's as good as dead, is what what Paul says in Romans. He's old. He's not childbearing years. And to make matters even worse, his wife, Sarah, is barren. Yet God comes and promises him a great number of offspring. In Genesis 15, Abraham doubts this promise. and He says to God, is this really going to happen? I know you've made me this promise, you've brought me to this land, but this promise of offspring, is it really going to happen? It is an impossible promise. And yet we see God keep his promise. We see him give him the son Isaac and from him Jacob. And that's what uh, Joshua goes on to in verse 4. He says, And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And so this promise of offspring, of, of descendants, we start to see being fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. But this promise of the land, that this nation possessing the land, it looks in trouble. They go from the land of Canaan down into Egypt. And as you might remember, things aren't looking good for God's people in Egypt. They are subject to harsh slavery. It seems a far cry from the promised milk and honey of of the promised land. Again, the promise that God has given seems to be impossible. And yet God makes fulfills his promise, although it seems impossible, and he delivers his people from Egypt. You may remember, he sends the plagues, and through the Passover, he delivers his people from slavery to sin, slavery, sorry, to uh, the Egyptians. And what's important here to remember is that if you, when you read through Exodus, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, when the people groan out to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, rescue us, what it says in, in the text is that because well, God remembered the covenant he made with Abraham, He made with Isaac, and he made with Jacob. And on account of that, he rescued the people. We're brought back to this promise, the promise God made to Abraham of offspring and of land, and we see him fulfilling this promise, even though it seems impossible. In 24, we see him uh, then kind of detail the the Red Sea incident and and bringing them into the wilderness. He spends a sentence, even though it goes for 40 years, he spends a sentence on the wilderness. And then he brings them up to speed with their current history. And again, reminding them how the Lord has fought for them. What's the point here? What are we to take from this uh, in these, these two chapters? Joshua is eager for us to see that God is a promise-keeping God. When he makes a promise, however impossible it seems, he will make a way to fulfill his promise. The promise of land and of offspring seemed impossible, and yet here God's people are in the land that was promised all those years ago. A great nation enjoying rest from their enemies. We are to read this part of Israel's history with awe and wonder of, of God fulfilling his promise. Now, that is incredibly comforting for us if you're a Christian here this morning. Because the thing is, God makes, in Christ, promises to us that can seem impossible. We can read Romans, and we get to chapter 8, and we read of this promise for those who love God, that God is working all things together for our good, to conform us into the image of Christ. And we can can read that promise, and we look at our lives, and we, we feel acutely the pain of sufferings and disappointments, and we look at the life of our friends and our church, and... In the world, we see things like shootings and, and the, the, the daughter of a, of a pastor being killed during the week. We see these things. 
And this promise that God is working all things together for our good, it seems impossible. How are we to believe and trust that promise? And one of the reasons why we spend time in the Old Testament is to be well acquainted with the character and nature of our great God, this God who fulfills and keeps his promise. When we look at the Israelites in the promised land, we are to remember that God has kept his promise despite all odds, despite it seeming impossible. He has fulfilled his promise. And for us as Christians, God has given us in Christ promises that though it may seem impossible, we can trust him. And one of the applications from this great story of Joshua and the, and the people taking the land, being in the promised land, is to strengthen our souls to trust the Lord. When we hear promises that are ours in Christ, we are to trust in him and be strengthened by that. But also to see the importance and the priority of God's grace to his people. I think my favorite two verses in the book of Joshua are actually the second half of 12 and 13 in, the, in chapter 24, where he says this, It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and city that you had not built. You dwell in them. You eat fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. A land they did not plant, a city they did not build, a vineyard they now eat the fruit from which they did not plant. You see the point? Israel are in the land enjoying its fruits, not because of their works, not because they labored, but because it was a gift from the Lord by his grace in his kindness. <coughs> to be a Christian is to be someone who is saved by grace and not by works. I had a good mate at uni, still a good mate. He's, um, he's a Muslim, and we had lots and lots of conversation. His name's Muhammad, funnily enough. Um, he, we'd have lots of conversations about the gospel. Right, and this, this was the stumbling block. I would say to him, the thing with Christianity is that you need, there's a penalty for sin that's required that you cannot pay. There's a righteousness, a perfect record of obedience that you need that you can't possess. And he said, that's ridiculous. You know, I, need, I need to atone for my sin. I need to build a righteousness that Allah would approve of. I said, that's the distinction. That's the point. God is, we, we can't rely on ourselves to pay the penalty for sin. We can't rely on our ability to build a righteousness to please the Lord. We have to rely on, like the Israelites, God's grace to bring us a righteousness that is not our own and pay the penalty for our sin that we cannot pay. A Christian is someone who understands that and clings to God's grace, clings to the fact that our best deeds are but filthy rags, rejoices in the fact that just in the same way the Israelites had cities they did not build, we possess a righteousness before God that we did not build. The Lord Jesus built that in his perfect life, and we receive that as a gift. And in his death, the penalty is paid, a penalty that we cannot pay. And so we see the story of Israel here in the land, being, and they're being reminded by Joshua, it was not there by their sword or by their bow, it is the Lord's work, it's the Lord's grace, it's his kindness to them. So the first thing we see is God's grace in the past. Now that Joshua is anchored, kind of his, any warning or instruction he's about to give in that reality of God's grace to them, he proceeds with a warning. So we'll pick it up in uh, verse 6 of chapter 23. Therefore... Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of, their name, of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. Verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, that you associate with them and they 
and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Joshua warns the people. Almost seems like a bit of a downer. They're in the land, there's peace from the surrounding enemies, but Joshua warns them. And surprisingly, the battle he's concerned about is not the physical battle that they might encounter in the future. The threat he is most concerned about is not the military threat that these surrounding enemies, these surrounding Canaanite nations impose, but rather the spiritual threat that they pose. He's not concerned mainly about military strategy as he leaves the people, but instead he's concerned about their covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. Because Joshua knows there is a battle that is more dangerous than any battle they would engage in with these surrounding enemies. There is a battle that rages within, with an enemy that is greater than any enemy they might face in their future battles. And that enemy is within, and that enemy is sin. This inclination, this default of the human heart to turn from the God, the one who we know has loved us and has saved us, and we turn to, to false gods, to, to everything but the Lord God. Joshua knows that this is a danger, a temptation for the, uh, the Israelites. And so he warns them to, to cling to the Lord their God, to cling to his word. Because we have to remember the context. Yes, they're in the land, but there are Canaanites among them. There are, there's this kind of Canaanite cultural air that they're breathing, and he is concerned that they would remain faithful to Yahweh, distinct from the nations, and not become like the very nations in which the land uh, they possess. He summarizes this warning with a question, which is a famous coffee cup type verse. But that's the context. Verse 14 of 24, it says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He poses a choice before the people. Whom will you serve? The true and living God, Yahweh, who has rescued you and loved you with an everlasting love, or the false gods of your fathers or these Amorites, the, 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 the gods of the land in which you dwell. Now, there is a word for us here, uh, irrespective of where you are today. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. You're here because your family brought you, a friend brought you, you're checking things out. Hear what Joshua is saying here, because it's quite profound. When he says, choose today whom you will serve, what he's saying is, there is no such thing as an atheist. In the final analysis, at a heart level, there's no such thing as an atheist. You might think you do not worship anyone or anything, but the reality is, at a heart level, we all worship. Irrespective of what you say your religious status is, we will all serve and worship someone or something. The choice is not whether we worship, the choice is what we worship. And the condition of the human heart, from what the Bible says, sin, is that we were made by God to love him, to live for him, to center our lives on him. But instead, because of sin, our hearts cling to everything but the Lord. You may say, I don't worship anyone or anything, I don't, that, I, I'm not with you there. But here's the thing, we all center our life on something. We all look to something as ultimate. All right, our hearts need this. We cling to something as, as most significant, to give us security, to give us lasting fulfillment and joy. And the Bible tells us that we have those feelings, they're good, 
Because the void placed in the human heart, only God can fill. Only he can bear the weight of the expectations we place on things. And you know, yes, you might say to yourself, well, I don't bow down and worship these, you know, these wood-made gods. Maybe not. But what we do instead is we take some good things. Maybe it's career, maybe it's family, maybe it's money. Good things, but we make them ultimate. And in doing that, they crush us. Because they cannot deliver on the, the promises that we think they can. And what Joshua is saying here is, choose today whom you will serve. There's a choice before you. You can either choose to serve the living God who has made you, who loves you, who has sent the Lord Jesus to die for you, to, to rescue you. Or you can worship false gods. You can look to the things of this world that promise much and deliver very little. That will leave you empty. The Bible talks about sin in a few ways. Sin in the Hebrew actually means just like missing the mark. You know, there's a standard God wants us to hit and we miss the mark. The Bible talks about transgression where there's commands that God expects from his people because he's our maker and we transgress or we break the law. But the reason why we sin can be explained by idolatry. And that's what we're seeing here. This heart worshipping of something or someone except the Lord. If you're this morning you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to choose today to serve the Lord, the one who has made you, the one who loves you. He and he alone can bear the weight of, of building your life on, of centering your life on. But for the Christians here among us this morning, there is a strong and clear word for us uh, in what Joshua says here in this, in this chapter. So here's the, here's the surprising thing. You know, the people who he says this to, choose today whom you'll serve, the true God, all these false gods, I mean, they've just experienced God kind of rescue them. They've experienced God uh, deliver them uh, in, in, in victory for battle after battle. They've, they've seen the Lord at work. It seems like a stupid question. Are you going to serve this true God or are you going to serve the false gods? They're probably sitting there going like, don't insult my intelligence, Joshua. What do you mean? That's not even a question. Of course I'll serve the true and living God. But see, Joshua knows how dangerous, how alluring the temptation of sin is. And if you're sitting there this morning thinking, you know what, I'm not really a, a, a danger of this. We need to hear God's word for us today. Even when you're in a great moment, you're rejoicing in the Lord, you, you're knowing, you, you feel his goodness and his grace, there is always the danger of te- or, or the temptation of, of worshipping other things apart from the Lord your God. We have to remember here that what Joshua is warning the people about is not that they're going to reject Yahweh completely and start worshipping foreign gods. They're going to try and do both. Yeah, I'll worship Yahweh, but also go and worship these Canaanite gods. All right? There's this syncretism that he's warning against. All right? And now for us here, perhaps it's not the same uh, danger of, of actually physically going to a mosque and worshipping, going to a temple and worshipping. But we too have the same danger of, yes, worshipping the Lord, our God, but then also being more assimilated to the world we live in, being more shaped by its worldview, being more shaped by its values than the word that God has given us. The, the warning that Joshua gives is to hold fast to the word. Let that be what influences and forms you more than the Canaanite culture you find yourself in. Just a heads up, we don't live in a Christian culture or Christian country. All right, there, are, there are forces and values and beliefs around us coming at us that are contrary to what God says in his word. And we best be on guard and be careful lest we, like what Joshua is warning the Israelites here, serve and worship the gods of our culture. So what does that look like? What are some ways that we can uh, sort of drift and be guilty of this? I mean, there are some clear ways that you... I mean, for these guys, marrying a Canaanite was a pretty clear 
capitulation from worshipping Yahweh. It tells them, don't, don't marry some the Canaanite. If they do, that's a clear, like, yeah, that's rebellion. All right, you worship a foreign god, yeah, that, that's clearly rebellion. Same thing for us today, right? There are, there are some clear ways we can re- rebel against God. Clear ways, we all would agree on it. Sex outside of marriage, addictions of various kinds, breaking the law, things that come to mind, easy things to go, yep, okay, if I believe the Bible, there's some pretty clear uh, sins. And yet you don't just, these Israelites wouldn't have just gone from, yes, we will serve the Lord, and then tomorrow worshipping a false god, or marrying a Canaanite. There is a drift. There is a drift from where the Lord and his word influences mainly, to where the word, sorry, the world, and it's, Beliefs and values shape us more. So I want to give you just three ways, not an exhaustive list, but where we can fall prey to this type of thing in the world we live in. Number one, relativism. All right, in our kind of cultural moment, relativism uh, is rife. What's relativism? Well, that you have the right to determine your truth. And that truth might be different to someone else's truth, but you can determine for yourself what is right and wrong. But don't tell someone else what's right or wrong. All right? This is the cultural air we breathe. And we can, if we're not careful, bring some of this cult, uh, relativism into our Christianity when we read the Bible. Yes, God has spoken clearly. Yes, God commands this. And there are some things I like, and I'm going to hold on to that. But gosh, there are a few things there. Hell, gosh, that, that's a pretty tough one to, to deal with. I'm, not, I'm, I'm probably going to leave that one there. And maybe we don't give that lip service, but in our hearts, that's what we're doing. All right, we're practicing this cultural relativism of going, look, there are some things that I'm happy to kind of go amen to in God's word, but there are other things that I'm not too sure about. And you know what? It's up to me. And there's this deep-seated kind of sin issue in all of us that, that says, no one will tell me how to live. No one can tell me how to be. That's the heart of sin, and it's there in all of us. And we can bring that into how we understand the Bible. And when it's the cultural air we breathe, we have to be careful when we come to the word, we have a posture of humility. When God has spoken, we heed and obey his word. We, we don't want to let this cultural relativism creep into how we as Christians treat the word and understand the word. It also impacts our evangelism. Because, you know, if you believe in relativism, how can you tell someone they're wrong? How can you tell someone that, you know, that they're their most fundamental understanding of the world and themselves is wrong, that they're sinful, that there's a God who made them and loves them and they need to repent of sin and trust in... I mean, how can you do that if you you really think, well, you can't tell someone they're right or wrong. I mean, it's up to them. And so how do we know we're kind of drifting towards this relativism? Well, we're finding it hard to believe the whole counsel of God. We find it hard to tell someone in evangelism uh, that they're they're sinful and they need a saviour. Don't get me wrong, there's there's a a, a difficulty to that. that, that's, That's fair enough. But... We, as Christians, need to be able to press past that and stand firm in God's word. That's what Joshua says to the people. Hold fast to the word of God. Second way we can see this, this kind of drift, I think, is in selfishness. Right? Self-care is a massive kind of buzzword and category for, uh, for our kind of cultural moment. And look, there is a... There's something to self-care that, that's fair enough and legitimate, right? Like we as Christians say so you should read your Bible, spend some time in the Word by yourself, praying so you can be filled spiritually, so you can you know, fulfill the responsibilities that God has given you in your life. It's, you know, there, there's an element of the whole self-care movement of, of looking after yourself that is fair enough. Okay? And yet, that being said, there is a more sinister type of belief or view that your best life, your, your joy is found when you count the needs of yourself more significant than the needs of others. Ultimately, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to do what makes you feel happy or brings you joy. That, that ultimately, that's what it's about. It really, in essence, is saying, don't think of it as being selfish. It's a good thing. You need it. 
That's the cultural air we breathe. And yet we come to the Bible, and what does the Bible say? That true life is found when you lay down your life for the sake of others, when you count the needs of others more significant than your own. The Bible prizes a life of inconvenience, a life of selflessness. Why? Because at the heart of our our religion as Christianity is a a saviour, Jesus, who counted our need more significant than his own. And we see this creep into our life when we use excuses. You know, I don't want to go to church. I mean, I could go to church, but if I I go to the beach, I just feel more sort of rejuvenated in my soul. That's what I need. Going to GC would be great, but you know, I just got that Netflix special I want to watch. And you know, I need that. I need, I've had, had a busy day, a busy week. I, I need that. That's what I need to feel good, to kind of feel restored. And so we need to be aware of the, the ways in which this kind of cultural tide can influence us and shape how we feel and think so we can be on guard and hold fir- firm to God's word and stand with the word when we assert that the best life lived is one where we lay ourselves down, our lives down for the service of our families, our wives, our husbands, our, our, our friends, our neighbours, the world around us. The third way, uh, again, not an exhaustive list, but a few things to help us ponder and think about, uh, is the way out, the influences or the voices in our life. The question I have for us today is, what voice are we most shaped by, most formed by, most influenced by? As Christians, the answer ought to be the Word of God. But there's this drift or this, you know, we live in an age of information. There's podcasts left, right and centre. We can read things online. There's so much information out there and there's so much self-help out there and some of it's good, true wisdom that, that comes from the Lord. But the question is, are we more eager to listen to podcasts, to listen to things that are not about the Lord than to read our Bible, to listen to sermons preached? And not just that, but are we more shaped by the wisdom of the world than the wisdom of the word. I say that as someone who struggles with that myself. And, and you know, it's, it's important to be able to constantly reflect on this question of, am I looking to the world and its wisdom to solve some problems in my life, to understand myself, to understand how to best love my family, or am I turning to God and his word for wisdom? Let us be a church that drives each other back to God's word, knowing that there's this, there's this risk, there's this danger to become like the nations around us. The other application here, there's a really strong word to Christian parents among us. All right, This is the coffee cup verse for a reason when it comes to family discipleship. I mean, it's what he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We, we best take heed of that this morning. We are a church that has grown in kids in our church, right? City Kids is bursting from the scenes, uh, which, which is great, and praise the Lord for that. But this is a relevant issue for us, and uh, maybe you're here this morning, you're a grandparent. Still relevant, but listen up, this is important for us as parents of, of children to be Christian in how we view this. Um, I had a very humbling moment two weeks ago, I think it was, uh, in our house, like we want to take this seriously, and we're, we're Christians, we're going to raise our kids to know and love the Lord, and uh, for us, that's an all-of-life thing, but in particular, uh, our Bible time, we want to read the Bible, pray, ask the kids what they've learned about God, themselves, Jesus, you know, send them to bed, reflecting on who the Lord is. Uh, for us, that's that sort of before-bed routine. It's not right or wrong. You can do uh, whatever, as long as it's getting done. We want to spend some time, uh, for us as a family, before bed, doing that Bible time. Uh, this particular night, Amelia, my wife, she was feeding the little one, Abel, and so I was doing uh, Bible time with the big kids, and um, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, 
four-year-olds sometimes pay attention to the two-year-olds challenge. And look, I, before having kids, I was like, man, I'm going to crush this. Like, I'm, these kids are going to know Greek by the time they're four, <laughs> memorise you know, this verse and that verse. And now I'm like, pay attention, just listen. Just at least look at the Bible. They'll look at it for me. Just give, give me something. And, and, and maybe it's just me. But it's a struggle. It's hard. And this particular night, I, I, was, I was tired, had a big day. I feel like I you know, didn't have much left to give. And there's requests for milk. There's, I've got to do a poo. You know, all, all these things, right? I'm like, just listen to the Bible, kids. This is God's word. And there's requests for, we want to watch the, 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 the song I watched at kindy. You know? I want, my son, Jude's obsessed with Spider-Man. I want to watch the Spider-Man song. And after nights of staying strong, I relented. Whatever, let's watch the Spider-Man song. Now, we had read the Bible. I don't know, the comprehension probably wasn't there, but there was something. But anyway, we're watching this Spider-Man theme song on YouTube. Amelia finishes feeding, she comes on in, looks at me, lovingly, and just says, how's Bible time going? <laughs> and that was like just a piercing, da- very lovingly, but it was a piercing dagger to my soul, because I... Just the conviction just heaped on me. Because look, the problem isn't that you watch some other videos before going to bed. You can use Spider-Man videos to preach the Lord to your kids. Go for it. But the problem was, something happened in my heart. The problem was, I'd lost some of my enthusiasm and, and passion and commitment to prioritizing teaching my kids the things of the Lord. Now, I'm not naive. It's a, it's a challenge. It's difficult. Yet the call is clear. There are many responsibilities we have as parents to kids, right? To, to develop them, different domains, physically, emotionally. But the most important responsibilities a parent we have is to develop our kids spiritually, to put before them the things of the Lord, to, to show them the greatness and, and majesty of the Lord, to, to show them the beauty of Jesus. And we have to trust the Lord with that. But in that moment, my wife said that, and I was filled with conviction, I'd realized that I'd lost my way a little bit. There was a sense in which I was just going through the motions. Yeah, we read the Bible, let's just read the Bible and we get to beg because I'm tired. All right. now we need, I, I need the Lord to help me in that. And that was a, a convicting moment and it it's was very helpful. And I, the irony is I'm in this passage right now, you know, preparing for the sermon and I'm sort of being a bit nonchalant about family Bible time. But the point is clear. We need to encourage each other. Right, we need to... We're, it takes, a, it takes a church, it takes a community to be encouraging each other to serve the Lord and to, to, to raise our children to know and love the Lord. So let's be a church that cares about the next generation. Right, let's pray for city kids. Let's take that time to, to chat to that kid. How, how do you got city kids? Let's encourage the next generation in the Lord. Because, spoiler alert, although the current generation here do pretty well for a generation, the next generation absolutely lose the plot and serve the foreign gods. Now, I'm not saying these guys did a bad job. Maybe they did. But the point is, let's have a next-generation mindset, and let's take our responsibility seriously. Yes, for parents at a household level, but as a church, let's be serious about the kids in our church and, and discipling them and raising them up in the knowledge of the Lord. So the second thing we see uh, in these chapters is a warning for the present. Now, the final thing we see uh, is, is a hope for the future. Now, there's a sense in which that title, uh, that point title is a little bit inaccurate, but, but run with me. In response to this warning, the people say three times over, no, 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 we will worship the Lord. 
We won't worship these foreign gods. They're false gods. Why would we do that? No, no, we will worship the Lord. Joshua says, fantastic, let's do a covenant renewal ceremony. They do that. There's this renewal ceremony where they pledge their allegiance to obey the covenant. They will keep the covenant. They will not transgress the law of Moses. They will not worship foreign gods. Now, this is you know, a high point in Israel's history. Uh, it, it, it says to us that in the generation of, of kind of Joshua and the elders that outlived him, that Israel were faithful. It says this in Judges, I'm just jumping forward a little bit, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, that's in reference to this address, the people of Israel went each to the inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Great news, the people are remaining faithful to Yahweh. Is this it? You know, we're five, six books into the Bible. Is this, is this God's final salvation act? The people are in the land, they're worshipping Yahweh. Have we arrived? Is this the final salvation act of the Lord? Verse 8, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. The band can, um, the band can come on up, but... This is devastating. We see this high point. They're in the land. There's this covenant renewal ceremony. We will worship Yahweh, the true. We won't worship the false gods. It's going well, maybe for a decade or so. But sure enough, the next generation abandon the Lord. They break the covenant and God does what he has promised to do. He uses the surrounding enemies as a tool of judgment in his hand. They no longer longer are victorious in battles. They have broken the covenant. And we're left scratching our heads here going, well, perhaps this wasn't the final act of God's salvation, the final act of redemptive history. Although it is a high point and worth kind of pausing and and praising God for this point in Israel's history, it is not the end. Because as Joshua knew, and the Bible tells us, there is an enemy at work within us that is greater than the surrounding enemies. And that enemy is sin. And even though there's been great victories against these surrounding enemies and nations as they went into the promised land, the final enemy was not dealt with. The greatest enemy of you and I, of the Israelites, sin had not been dealt with. That's why Joshua says uh, in 24, verse 19, But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Joshua is struggling to understand how God can be holy and dwell with a sinful people. We get to the end of Joshua, and we're the first kind of chapter of God's redemptive history to his people, and we're left with these two questions. 
You know, there's this little high point, and yet the enemy of sin is so strong that the people abandon Yahweh and worship false gods. Who will deal with this enemy? And the question is, how can this holy God that we see over and over again in the Old Testament, a holy God who will not let sin go unpunished, dwell with sinners? This is the question that we ought to be left with as we come to the end of Joshua. Yes, we reflect on the greatness of God in causing victories and bringing them into the promised land, and yet the land was never the final point. God cared more about the Israelites. He cared more that, that he would occupy their hearts than the Israelites would, would occupy Canaanite land. And that question of who will fight and who will deliver us from this final enemy, well, praise be to God, we have an answer. We have a solution. And that answer is at Easter. What is happening at Easter? When you really think about it, we've got this religion that comes from this man who is naked on a Roman cross being crucified. Like that in itself is a strange, ridiculous thing. We ask ourselves, what is going on there? What's going on there is that this enemy that plagued the Israelites this enemy of sin, this enemy that plagues us, sin, Jesus is going to battle with. We look at these wars and these battles in Joshua and we go, these are, these are impressive battles, these are impressive victories. They've got nothing on the enemy of sin and have nothing on the battle that Jesus has waged against sin. See, Jesus in his life lived the perfect life. He lived without sin in stark contrast to us. But on the cross, he goes he fights against sin. He deals with the penalty of sin, death. He takes upon himself the wrath that you and I deserve. And he is victorious over this great enemy and opponent of sin. He is raised to life again, vindicating his victory over sin. And we now too can join in him in his victory because he offers it as a gift. If we come to him in faith, trusting him to give us his perfect record in his life, his sacrificial death as a payment for our sin, that we too, this greatest enemy in our life, sin, and you may have other enemies and other issues in your life, but this, the Bible says, is your biggest problem, has been dealt with. It's what Christ has done at the cross. There's a unique chance for us as a church this Easter, in light of Joshua, in light of hearing of these great battles against formidable opponents, and unlikely victories, to be reminded with an acute freshness of the victory that Christ has purchased at the cross. This ought to be a warm blanket for our souls. We must remember, in spite of whatever other issues are going on in life, we can hold firm to this reality, that Christ has defeated sin. He's defeated its penalty, he's disabled its power, and though sin remains in us, he will one day deal with sin completely, and we will live in a better land better than the promised land, the new heavens and new earth where no sin remains, destroys, there's no tears. You know, as we uh, look through Joshua, often the application is spiritual warfare. And that, that's, that's true and accurate to a point, right? As we read of these battles, we ought to think of our own kind of battles, not being against physical enemies, but against you know, powers and principalities. That is true. But in those battles, let's not forget that the war has been won. The war against sin, the war against the enemy has been won because Jesus has gone to the cross. He has laid down his life for you and I. The greatest victory ever. And we can partake in that victory too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Joshua. We thank you for all that it teaches us and the ways it's challenged us. 
And Lord, as we reflect on the, the victories that Israel had against these formidable opponents, help us to not lose sight that there was a greater victory coming. There was a greater enemy than the Canaanites. And with that came a greater victory. And, and, and as we approach Easter and this week in our households and amongst our friends, help us, Lord, to reflect on the great victory that Christ has had over sin. Help us to remind each other of the power of Christ, the majesty of Him. Lord, we're so thankful that in His death, the penalty of sin has been dealt with, the power of sin in our life has been disabled, and the sin that remains, help us, Lord, with that knowledge to fight to cling to you and not to the world around us. May we be more formed and shaped by your word than the world. Lord, apart from you and your strength, this is impossible, and so we ask your help. We need you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.